Well, if you're a sporting fan, as you know I am, then the sporting highlight of this year was the Beijing Olympics. And the sporting star of the Games, at least as far as athletics is concerned, was the Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt. Not only did he break the world record for 100 meters, uh, but he then went on to break the 200 meter world record. Amazing though this was, I myself have a greater personal admiration for those who competed in the marathon race. And for one reason. I could manage very slowly to run 100 meters. And even at a push, probably someone pushing me in a wheelchair, um, I could probably manage 200 meters. But there is no way I could run a marathon. Yeah, I can visualize myself at the London Marathon, you know, with all those crowds of people setting out in a blaze of glory as you, as you, you, know, as you go through underneath the, the, the uh, big banner. And I can really visualize myself in my dreams, you know, the final 385 yards breasting the tape as you come home at the end of it. My worry is the other 26 miles between. <laughs> the start and the finish. As out on the roads, far from the cheering crowds in the grandstand, you struggle to keep going. Who can ever forget those awful pictures of Paula Radcliffe, the favorite in Athens in the Olympics in 2004, dropping out of the race after starting out with such high hopes. In the New Testament, uh, the Christian life is compared to a marathon. In the book of Hebrews, the writer encourages Christians, he said, let us run with patience the race marked out for us. And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And Paul himself writing to young Timothy as he's about to leave the earthly scene, he can say, I have finished the race. 2 Timothy 4 verse 7. But most of the 20 letters written in our New Testament, in our Bibles are written to Christians to tell them and to tell us how to run the middle bit of the race. Between start and finish. Why? Because there is a very real possibility that you can be diverted off track, slow down, or even drop out of the race altogether. You know one of my great tragedies as a pastor? I look out at you in the congregation, but I always think, I lay awake sometimes at night and think of the people who used to run well. Dropped out. They've gone. Where are they? Or they're not running well. Look at my own life. I think, how am I really doing? As we come to the end of another year. And the New Testament describes all these kind of runners. People who've slowed down, dropped out, been diverted. People who'd heard Paul preach, Peter preach, some of them had even heard the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet they still literally ran into problems. And today I want to focus on one such group of Christians who are featured in a letter which the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to the Christians in the Roman province of Galatia. That's, if you want to know where it is, it's in modern day Turkey. And Paul gives them, as it were, his progress report. I'm going to speak on the chapter it's in, but if you want a verse for today, it's this. Galatians 5, verse 7. 
You were running a good race. Notice, Paul says, you were. Not you are, but you were. Who knows, maybe this is a verse that the Lord speaks to you this morning at the end of another year. And you know you can fool all the people, but behind the facade only the Lord knows how you're running. And maybe it says to you this morning, or to me, Peter, you were running a good race. So I'm leaving you with this question today. Are you running a good race? And to help us find out, and if necessary, discover how to get up and get going, let's look at the chapter in which it occurs, and we'll put it in context. So, will you turn in your Bibles to Galatians 5, page 1171. If you don't have a Bible, you really do need one. There are Bibles in the pews, just grab one in front of you, and we're going to read this together and then look at it this morning. And as we read it, try to... This will give us the background as to why Paul says they were running a good race. Try and, if, you, if you're diagnosing this, when the chapter's over, ask yourself, what's happened? What, what stopped them? All right? Because it may well be the thing that is stopping us running a good race. Okay, Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to you, every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await, through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, 
idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is God's word addressed particularly to Christians. Let's start by looking at the problem or the problems these Christians face which were ruining their race problems which most of us have faced are facing or you will face at some time or other if you've started out on the Christian race so let's start with problems Uh, in his Sermon on the Mount Jesus said that there are just two roads in life listen to his words they're very compelling very challenging Politically incorrect in the age in which we live. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. If you are a Christian, you have set out through that narrow gate, and you're on this narrow road. Now, stick with the metaphor for a moment it's a narrow road and there are hazards on either side into which it is possible to fall diversions if you like from the narrow road and most Christians are in danger of falling into one or the other in fact in my experience some Christians lurch from one to the other the first was a particular problem to these Christians from a Jewish background in Galatia. What is usually called legalism. Legalism is trying to earn God's favor by keeping his law. Now to want to do what pleases God, that which is in his law, is a good thing. The problem is that none one of us can manage to do it. No matter how hard we try, we always fail Or there is within us a conflicting desire to do what displeases God. And that desire always seems to work out. Now the Apostle Paul knew this. For he tried harder than most to please God. And in in comparison, if this was marked on a grade, he would be up the top somewhere. Yet he was all too aware of his abject failure. Listen to his words summarizing his plight in Romans 7, the problem. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good... Evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within its members. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? So what is his answer? What is the solution? Who will rescue him? Who will save him? Thanks be to God, he says, through Jesus Christ Our Lord. The good news is that Jesus Christ did what we could never do. 
He and he alone kept God's law perfectly. So he was able to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for our law breaking. So that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And that forgiveness, that that reconciliation is now offered to us as a free gift from God. We have to come admitting we cannot please God by our own efforts. And simply receive that salvation he offers by faith. It's that free undeserved gift of God. What the New Testament calls is grace. So we began this morning by singing about that. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. Not by our human ambition, but by the blood of the Lamb. Paul puts it very clearly in his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He says, we are saved by grace. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now this is foundational, it's fundamental. You come as a Christian, if, you've never, if you aren't a Christian this morning, there needs to be a time when you come and with the hymn writer you say, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And you were saved when you first acknowledged that. That you cannot save yourself by works. And it, it is, it, it's, as it were, that moment that the starter's gun goes off and you start the Christian race. But the question is, how do you keep running? The answer that had been given to these Christians in Galatia by Jewish teachers who had come in was that you must now strive to please God and to keep his law by your own efforts. Now you're in, you have to keep up with it. And particularly, they said, you need to follow God's law given through Moses. You need to be circumcised as a mark of your determination. And these Galatian Christians had accepted this teaching. But Paul will have none of it. He says, if you go down that route, you have fallen out of the race, you have fallen from grace. Look again at the words we read in verses 2 to 4. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. You've fallen out of the race. They've started so well, but now they were no longer running a good race. These teachers had cut in and driven them off track down one side of the narrow road. That hazard. And instead of running freely, they had ended up in chains. Now we'll look in a moment about the antidote for this. But we need to pause and recognize that many well-intentioned Christians are sidetracked by this same problem. may not be a specific Jewish problem. may not be challenged about circumcision. But yes, we are saved by grace. But we then try to live by self-effort. By what the New Testament calls by works. And for some of us, our ongoing acceptance by God depends on our good works, on our good performance. Yet the harder we try, the more aware we become of our poor performance. And so you end up with this great burden, a yoke around your neck, a yoke of guilt and failure. And instead of running freely, you become slaves. That's the first problem. The diversion from the narrow road into legalism. But there is an opposite problem to which we can also fall, which is mentioned in our chapter. 
from legalism to what we can call license. License means abusing freedom, as Paul puts it in verse 16, to indulge the sinful nature. There are some Christians for whom legalism is no problem at all, or no longer a problem. They realize they are free from trying to please God by their own efforts, so then they go to the opposite extreme and abuse their freedom to do whatever they like. In fact, we know from another of Paul's letters written to the Christians in Rome that some people were even teaching, sin as much as you can because God loves to forgive sin. And the more you sin, the more you can experience God's grace. Now, we might not go quite so far, but we may nonetheless be in danger of thinking that when, it is, when we sin, it is not that serious because God will forgive me anyway. But in verse 13, Paul issues a warning to Christians. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Now, this is, you need to focus really clearly. This is written to Christians and tells us that once you start out on the race, once you become a Christian, it does not mean you are finished with the old sinful nature. Rather, there is the real possibility that a freed Christian can choose to indulge his or her sinful nature. So rather than minimizing my sin or my own personal responsibility for my actions and choices, I discover I'm fully accountable and responsible. And this is a serious matter, and that's why Paul issues this warning, that people who habitually live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, verse 21. So here's the second problem which stops me running well. License abusing my freedom to indulge the sinful nature. And notice, like the first problem of legalism, it has the same outcome. The result is you go back to slavery, in this case to sin itself. Again, Paul warns the Christians in Rome. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Friends, if you think it's some automatic process when you become a Christian, you never have a problem anymore with sin. Look at what Paul is writing. He is saying there is a real possibility that you can allow sin to reign in your body. That you can give your body over to sin again. And some of us this morning, maybe, are in bondage to sin because we are Christians, because we've been diverted from this course. So these two problems, trying to outline the problems, you're running the narrow road, either legalism or license, will divert you and stop you running a good race. So, let's turn to the antidote. How can I get back on track and start running well again in the Christian life if I've fallen into either of these traps? So let's turn from problems and, secondly, to progress. Let's go back a moment again to the moment you start the race. Uh, for some of us, it's a very clearly defined moment in our lives. I, I know when I became a Christian. January the 11th, 1961. The age of, well, I'm not telling you what the age was, but it was a long time ago. And I look back at it and think, how far have I come in all those years? But, but think of the moment, whether you can define it clearly, or that period in your life when you became a Christian. Uh, what exactly happened? Well... This last year we've been looking at the book of Acts. Go right back to the beginning of our series in Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, you remember the Apostle Peter preached this amazing sermon, and he tells the watching crowds that they are responsible for the death of Jesus. They have murdered their Messiah. And the people are cut to the heart and say, Brothers, what should we do? Acts 2.37. Now, Peter's answer tells us what we must do. Look 
Listen carefully, verse 38, Acts 2. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's unpack that a minute. He says, repent, turn from your sin, admit your guilt, and turn to God and put your faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because through him your sins can be forgiven. Now that's a wonderful thing, but if that were all... We would have a serious problem. Our past is wonderfully forgiven, but what of the future? We've started out on this race. How are we going to keep going? Well, Peter also mentions not only what we must do, but what God will do. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise, this promised Holy Spirit, is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. When you become a Christian, here's the great news, God not only forgives your past, He not only gives you hope for the future, eternal hope, but He puts His Spirit within you to enable you to live a life that humanly possible, humanly speaking, is humanly impossible. His Spirit comes to live within you. And His Spirit enables you to run well, to stay on track. That's how we start the race. And what Paul is saying to these Christians in Galatia, that's how you continue to run the race. Not relying on your own efforts, legalism, or running after sin, license. No, Paul tells the Christians in in Galatia and to us how to run a good race. So I say, he says, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Notice the two parts. Live by the Spirit. The way to run the race well is by constant, moment by moment, dependence on the Holy Spirit. Recognizing that you cannot please God by your own efforts. You must continue to run as you began. And this is what the Galatian Christians had failed to do. If you turn back in Galatians 3, he says, I would like to learn from you just one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? No wonder he tells them they are foolish Galatians. They have God's divine power at work within them. His Holy Spirit enabled them to be holy, to run a good race, to live a life that pleases God, yet they reverted to trying to run the race by their own efforts. No wonder they're no longer running a good race. For they'd been diverted, of course. Now, just pause for a moment and ask yourself, where are you in this? Are you living by the Spirit? Or are you trying to run the race by your own efforts? And failing. The way to run a good race is by constant constant dependence on the Holy Spirit. Recognizing we cannot please God by our own efforts, but He has given us the ability, through His indwelling Spirit, to live a life that pleases God. But we must also recognize we must not displease God by our own willfulness. By using our freedom to indulge the sinful nature. The positive step to progress to run a good race is to live by the Spirit so that negatively, then you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Receiving a new nature when you are born again of the Spirit of God does not mean you're finished with the old nature and its desires. In fact, bad news, once you become a Christian the battle gets worse. Because a war is stoked up within you. The battle intensifies. What you used to do lightly and easily, you no longer can do without compunction because your conscience begins to trouble you. There is a battle. 
between your new nature and your old nature. And the only way to deal with the desires of the sinful nature is, says Paul, to deal with them ruthlessly. Look what he says about this decisive action in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Crucifixion was a pitiless, painful, decisive form of death. So our rejection of our old nature. We must spare our old nature and desires no mercy. Give them no room in our lives. Give them no place in our minds and our thinking. What theologians used to call, and you've probably never heard of it, some young people, it's what's called mortification. It's putting to death the desires of the old nature. It involves decisive action. John Stuck comments very helpfully. That decisiveness took place when we became Christians, identifying ourselves with Jesus in his death by crucifixion. But... It is at every subsequent point of conflict and temptation that we need to take decisive action. No wonder that the Apostle Paul said he had been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, and that Jesus himself said his disciples must take up the cross daily by denying self, Luke 9 verse 23. If you want a good book to read, some of the younger people, the older people maybe have read it, but if you've never read Jerry Bridges' book, The Pursuit of Holiness... It's a brilliant book, one of the best books ever written on the subject. He writes, it is time for Christians to face up to our responsibility for holiness. Listen carefully. Too often we say, we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated, we are simply disobedient. It might be well if we stop using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. Instead, rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. So Paul summarizes how to run this good race in verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. As we say yes to the Spirit and allow Him to direct our lives, so we will say no to the desires of the sinful nature. And so we are led, he says, verse 18, by the Spirit. We are steered along the narrow path, away from legalism and away from license. Let me try and be practical, because there's, there's been pretty hard going. I realize that. Some of you are looking a bit glazed, all right? So stay with me. Uh, let's take a practical example. Let's say you're tempted by a particular sin. Let, let's say your particular sin is envy, all right? So you come to church, and you're praising the Lord, and you walk through the doors into Charlotte Chapel this morning. You sit in your pew, and all is well until you look across the pew, and you... S- this is not... Well, it may be anyway. <laughs> And you see another person who has something that you desire. Be it a job, a wife or husband, children, a car, a house, a job, a personality, a singing voice, or whatever. Thoughts of envy spring up into your mind. But another voice says, that's wrong, you're supposed to be a Christian. So you try hard and you think, I'm just not going to be envious. But try as you might, you're overwhelmed by the green-eyed monster. And you end up feeling really guilty. And another voice says, God doesn't love you anymore. How can you stay in Charlotte Chapel singing hymns with all those perpetually victorious and joyful Christians? You might as well go home. Multiply this by a couple of hundred temptations and you will end up burdened, very burdened, with a yoke of slavery. Whenever you attempt to do things by your own effort, you quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 
For you are saying by your actions, I can do this myself. I can overcome envy. But take the opposite extreme and the same problem. This time the little voice tells you, look, there's no point in making any effort because you will certainly fail as you have done a thousand times before. Your envy is understandable. And so you think, unobservable. And in any case, God will understand and forgive you. So go on, be envious. Now instead of quenching the Spirit, you grieve the Spirit of God. Ephesians 4, 5 verse 4, uh, 4 verse 30. And as someone has put it, and it needs to be put reverently, the Holy Spirit is a sensitive person. So the next time this happens, it's a little easier to be envious. Until envy becomes part of your character. And now people do begin to notice it. And they shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's just the way he, she is. In the end, you've come to believe, even though you are a Christian, there is nothing you can do about it. In reality, the prison door is open. But you've chosen to be a prisoner, a slave to sin. But suppose at the point of envy, when it first enters your mind, you choose to give it no further place in your thinking. You say, Lord, I feel envious about that person. But fill me with your spirit. And help me at this particular point. So you begin that battle. And every time it happens. Until something wonderful happens. Gradually. Step by step. Your character becomes more transformed. And you suddenly find. You were slowing down in the marathon race. And suddenly you have this new burst of energy. And you're starting to be able to run well. Where you ran so badly before. As you live by the spirit. You do not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. At every point of conflict. Of temptation. As you turn your back on that sinful deed. As you turn to God. As you trust and rely on the help of his spirit. You make progress one step at a time. No wonder then that Paul concludes the chapter by focusing on making progress. Since we live by the spirit. Verse 25 he says. Let's keep in step with the spirit. So. Are you making progress? Am I making progress? Are we getting on? More importantly let's just conclude by asking another question. Is there any way to tell? How you're running. So, finally, look at proofs. In this chapter and in the rest of the New Testament, there are two certain proofs that a person is in step with the Spirit and running a good race. They are Christ-like character and Christ-like love. Just those two. In the end of Galatians 5, we have a contrasting character between those who are controlled by the sinful nature. He describes them. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is a contrast then between those and those who are led by the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law. Now this does not mean that a Christian will never sin and produce one of these acts of the sinful nature. And so be barred from heaven. The verb live like this refers to habitual practice rather than an isolated lapse. If a person exhibits these sinful characteristics and there is no, pro there is no process of change for the better taking, part, taking place in their lives... 
then it raises serious questions as to how the Holy Spirit, indwelling such a person, could produce such unholy living. Rather, when the Holy Spirit is at residence in our lives, allowing, allowed to control us, then the evidence will be holy living. The fruit will take time. Friends, we're all looking for magic cures that will happen just like that and suddenly you wake up one morning you're a sinner and the next morning you're a glorious saint with never any more problems in your life it will happen but not till you leave this life the fruit takes time patient pruning and weeding to bring it to maturity but it will be seen in a life that is increasingly pleasing to God that fulfills rather than dispenses with his law you fulfill the law by the spirit And the sure proof that a person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit is holy living. Jesus himself said in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 16, By their fruits you will know them. But there is a second proof as well. Not only Christ-like character, but Christ-like love. The way that we live among Christians. Did you notice, very striking in this chapter, how much reference there is to how Christians relate to one another? There is a striking contrast in relationships between serving one another in love, verses 13 to 14. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Rather, interesting, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a contrast between that and biting and devouring each other. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other, verse 15, and provoking and envying one another. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other, verse 26. Fancy Christians biting and devouring one another, provoking and envying one another. Whoever heard of such a thing in a church? Sadly, far too often. And once is too much. Yet the mark of those who follow Jesus is not the dramatic works of the Spirit, wonderful though they are, or the gifts of the Spirit, amazing though they are, but the love that Christians show in practical and real ways towards one another. And some Christians have opted out of the race by opting out of fellowship with other Christians. Can I say it very clearly? You cannot run the Christian race alone. You run with other runners. And you encourage other runners as you run alongside them. And you pick up those who have fallen down and you encourage them. And sometimes you pick them up and carry them. Jesus said this was the authentic mark of his followers. John 13, you should know the verses by heart if you're a Christian of any length of time. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So how are we running in Charlotte Chapel? How are we getting on with one another? Envying, provoking, barking, devouring? Or are we truly demonstrating real Christian love? Are we those who are serving one another in love? Just a word in conclusion. Let's see where we've come. One of the features of the London Marathon and it must be terribly annoying if you're killing yourself trying to run the races, that these reporters come alongside you from the television and as you're gasping along, stick a microphone under your nose and say, and how's it going? <laughs> but today, the Holy Spirit, who literally the comfort of the Paracletus is the one who comes alongside us. I want to suggest the Holy Spirit comes alongside each one of us in Charlotte Chapel at the end of another year and he graciously comes alongside us and he asks us a question and he says... Are you running a good race? 
Maybe you started out in the Christian life in a blaze of glory. Maybe there were lots of witnesses who watched you being baptized, maybe in this church in the pool below me. But now the weeks and the months and even years have gone by. And if truth were told, you are struggling in the race. Some of you are experiencing the loneliness of the long-distance runner. Others have strayed off track and are heading in the wrong direction. And others of us have, like the marathon runner, hit the proverbial wall. And we're going nowhere fast. Can I suggest that today is a day, God's day, at the end of another year, at the start of a new year, a time to get back on track and to begin to run well again with the help of God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together.